Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We're looking at Psalm 2. This song consists of 12 verses, and it may at first seem very different from what we saw in Psalm 1. The focus may appear to be a complete shift in emphasis, but hopefully you'll see how the two are tied together as we unpack this text. So here's Psalm 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord. Father, we ask your blessing on the preaching of your word. We pray that your word would cut us to the quick and speak to us and guide us. And fill us with hope. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. As you look at this text, you see that this is a song that speaks of really three themes. There are three movements in the psalm. We sing first of the rebellion of earthly kings, and then the derision of God on high, and finally the anointing of the Son as King. So those are the three things we'll be looking at this morning. Rebellion, derision, and anointing. Now I know one of the advantages to our live-streamed sermons is that occasionally if I use a word that people aren't sure of the meaning of, you can Google it and post the definition helpfully in the comments. Derision is one of those words that uh, we don't use very often, but it's a great word to describe God's attitude towards rebellion, as we'll see in a moment. But first, I want us to see the way in which Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are connected. Why it is that these two psalms, as different as they may seem, actually go together. Now, if you remember in Psalm chapter 1, we saw that the very first word of the psalm and the very last word of the psalm give us themes. The first word is blessed. The last word is perish. And one of the major themes of the Psalter, if you read through the entire book of Psalms, is that contrast between blessedness 
and perishing. There's a way of righteousness that leads to blessing, and there's a way of wickedness, a way of rebellion that leads to perishing. To put it another way, one of the major themes of the book of Psalms is that the way of happiness is the way of holiness. As human beings, we're constantly looking for the path to happiness, to fulfillment, to contentment. The problem is we seek happiness in all the wrong places. But as created human beings, the path to real happiness is the path to holiness. And that's a lesson the Psalms teach over and over again. But if you look at Psalm 2 and you look at the final verse that we just read, you read these words, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So again, you see those two words, perish and blessed, in reverse order this time. And this forms what uh, interpreters call an inclusio. What they mean is the psalmist's use of the words brackets the ideas that are in between. So repeating this thought from Psalm 1 at the end of Psalm 2, using these specific words again in this way at the end, is meant to signal to us that these things go together. That Psalm 1 and 2 form an introduction to the rest of the book that follows. And the themes introduced here are the themes that matter throughout the rest of the course of the book of Psalms. So at the end of Psalm 2, we learn that rejecting the Son is the way of perishing. Take refuge in Him and you will be blessed. The same idea of the two ways. But now we understand it a little bit more. Another theme has been added. In Psalm 1, the idea of righteousness versus wickedness. But in Psalm 2, another theme, God's kingship. God's kingship. And it makes sense that on Palm Sunday, we would be reflecting on the kingship of Christ. Because if you look at our reading from Matthew 21, Jesus, when he explains to the disciples how they are to explain their actions as they're gathering together the things that Jesus has sent them to get, he quotes that Old Testament passage And it specifically relates to kingship. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus understands what happens on Palm Sunday. His triumphal entry, he understands it in terms of kingship. Your king is coming to you. And that's what Psalm 2 is all about. God's kingship. But before we get to that, we need to talk about rebellion. Because that's how the psalm begins, with rebellion. In the first three verses, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The whole lesson of the book of Psalms, and of all of Scripture, is that God is our king, and because of that, our destiny is glory. But there will be struggle along the way. Our destiny is glory, but there will be struggle along the way. Why is that? 
Well, you get the answer here. It's because of rebellion. It's because of sin. The question, why did the nations rage, in verse 1, is answered in verse 3 with the words that they speak. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The, the chains they want to break are the chains that God has placed on them. Every rebel casts his cause as a heroic one. Like everyone in rebellion always sees the one that they rebel against as a tyrant, and this is no different. The way they see God's rule and reign over creation, they see it as a form of tyranny, and they want to cast off the yoke. They want to break the bonds. They want to break free from God. But the question you have to ask yourself is whether this is really freedom or just another form of bondage. As we've been working through the book of Romans over the course of the last year and a half, the answer to that question has become really obvious. A lot of times we use the word freedom to describe something that's actually not free at all. It's actually a kind of slavery. And Paul talks about this repeatedly, but, but look at Romans chapter 6. And in verse 16, you'll read these words. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. So depending on who you serve, who you serve, that's who you're a slave to, who you're in bondage to. So the kings of the earth who say, let's free ourselves from this bondage, that isn't really an expression of freedom. It's an experience or expression of bondage, of sin, sinful rebellion. As heroic as they try to make it sound, there's nothing heroic about it. It's a very human thing because it's a very sinful desire. There's a lesson for us that follows from this, by the way, which is that you can't follow authority blindly because authority is in rebellion. The rebels in Psalm 2 are not the outcasts. They're not the marginalized. They're not the people that, that don't have power. They are the kings of the earth. They are the rulers, the judges. They are the people in positions of authority and influence, and they desire to be sinfully free of God's rule. Which is why, as believers, we cannot simply follow the authorities in our culture. We can't simply do what they say we ought to do, because those authorities are often in rebellion to God. There's a conflict between the kings of the earth and the king of all creation. There's a conflict between God's way and the way of human power, human influence. So we can't simply go along with the flow. We actually have to resist. We actually have to answer the question, where is your king? Where is your king? Who do you serve? Who do you follow? A question every one of us has to ask. Because every one of us has to decide whether we will be in rebellion against God or rebellion against earthly powers. Look at God's reaction to the rebellion. It's not the way you and I might react. If I knew that the powerful people were plotting against me 
if somehow the people in power had decided, we've got to do something about that Mark. We've got to fix him. I would be worried. I'm no better than the prophet Elijah, who we talked about a few weeks ago, who when he found out that the queen wanted him dead, went into hiding despite all of the boldness of his ministry up to that point. I would be concerned if I knew that all the people in power were plotting against me, but God is not worried about it. The psalmist says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs at this pretension, at this rebellion. And it's important, it's, it's intentional that God is referred to here as he who sits in the heavens because God's throne is in heaven. So there's an irony here that those who sit on thrones upon the earth think that they can rise up and throw off the yoke of the one who sits enthroned in heaven. Of course he laughs because they're not in charge. He is. They don't represent a threat to him at all. So he responds with laughter. But it isn't a joke. He's not laughing at how funny it is. It's the laughter of that great word we talked about earlier, derision. It's a laughter of scorn. It's, it's a laugh that you laugh in the face of threat, of danger. It's a laugh of boldness. Right, the holy creator responds with laughter, but, but not because he's amused. Because he also responds, we're told, with wrath. He answers the rebels in wrath, in fury. He takes it very seriously, this rebellion. Because although it poses no threat to his power, it is an offense against his holiness. And it's an offense that will be answered. It's interesting if you flip all the way back to the end of your Bible, to the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, as the seals are being opened, when the sixth seal is opened, you read these words that should immediately make you think of Psalm chapter 2. Hear this. This is Revelation 6. and We'll look at verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? When you think about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, a phrase like the wrath of the Lamb, it, it doesn't compute. Like lambs are, are, are furry and, and soft and cuddly and, and it's, it's a really sort of sacrificial image. But the wrath of the Lamb? What are they talking about here? They're talking about the righteous wrath of a king who judges injustice and makes right what was wrong. This is what justice feels like when you're on the receiving end. The wrath of the Lamb, prefigured for us in Psalm chapter 2. God responds in wrath and fury, the psalmist says, but 
but he also responds with specific words. You notice the structure of the psalm. In the first stanza, we get the kings of the earth, and then we hear what they say. And now we get God enthroned in heaven, and then we hear what he says, how he answers. What's the rebuttal that he gives? And it's interesting, because it isn't what you might think. God doesn't say, well, you know, I'm all-powerful, I'm omnipotent, my throne is in heaven, you can't even reach me. He doesn't emphasize the distance between heaven and earth. Instead, he emphasizes the way that he has crossed that distance. He says these words, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The kings of the earth rise up, the many different thrones all over the earth. They unite together in rebellion against God. And God says, As for me, I've set my king on Zion my holy hill, and no other throne matters. There is no other king in all creation but the one who I have set on the throne in Zion. God's answer to sinful rebellion is King Jesus. And there is no other answer. What that means for us is this. Not only can you not trust authority blindly, but also... You can't stay neutral. There's a conflict between kings going on here. Pretenders to the throne and the true king. And in that conflict, it's not possible to stand on the sidelines and not choose a side. So we saw in Romans 6, there's service to righteousness and there is service to sin. There's not a third option. It's one or the other. You rebel against the God of creation and his anointed one, or you rebel against the rebels. And there is no other choice. There is no neutrality. Again, the question comes, where is your king? Where is your king? He who sits in heaven says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Where is your king? Let's talk about that king. The rebellion that we read about is a rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed. Against the Lord and against his anointed. Well, who is his anointed? Who is his anointed? You think you know the answer and you're right, but not yet. First, we have to look at the immediate context. When Psalm 2 is written, and and these words are first spoken and sung, when people sang these words, the Lord and his anointed, who did they think was being referred to as his anointed? It was David. It was King David, the anointed king of Israel. And as you know, but it's worth repeating, uh, that word, Translated here as anointing in Hebrew is the word from which another word is derived. That word is Messiah. Messiah. The Messiah is the anointed one. That's what that means. So when we talk about Jesus as the Messiah, we're talking about Jesus as the anointed one. And who are the anointed ones? They are the kings of Israel. The Davidic kings of of Israel. So in the immediate context, it is King David. And as history progresses, the successors of King David 
would have been seen as those anointed ones. But of course, that earthly kingdom came to an end. And the people of God found themselves longing for another anointed one, longing for a Messiah. And when you long for a Messiah, you are longing for a king. So the rebellion is against the Lord God, the Father, enthroned in heaven, but also against his anointed one, who is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who is seated on the throne in Zion. Jesus is the immovable king. Jesus is the one that the words of the decree are spoken to. When you read the the decree, the way that the psalmist describes it, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He's speaking to Jesus. Jesus is receiving these words, these promises. And if you're not sure about that, all you have to do is turn to Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul preaches a sermon where he quotes this psalm, specifically these words of the decree, and he applies them. In Acts 13.33, specifically to Jesus, these words were spoken to Christ. And if that's not enough for you, you can turn to the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, you find this not once, but twice. In chapter 1, verse 5, and again in chapter 5, verse 5, this decree is quoted, and we are specifically assured that who is being referred to here is Jesus. This isn't just a a royal psalm. In other words, it's a royal psalm that reveals itself to be a messianic psalm, talking about the kingship of Christ. And as king, Jesus does what kings do. The role of a king, the duty of a king, the office of a king, as the Westminster Standards refer to it, one of the things a king does, in addition to administering justice, he conquers the enemies of his people. He conquers the enemies of his people. And that's what King Jesus does. He conquers his foes who are our foes. Which is why the song ends with a kind of challenge to be reconciled to Jesus. right? To be at peace with Jesus. But it's to be at peace with the Jesus who rules and reigns. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Final lesson is you can't ignore the kingship of Jesus. We create so many different versions of Jesus, so many ideas of who Jesus is, but Psalm 2 reminds us that Jesus is King, that Jesus is Sovereign Lord. Some of you have heard me encourage the reading of Flannery O'Connor's short story, Parker's Back, before, and I never get tired of recommending this story. It's, It's a story about a guy who gets a big tattoo of Jesus on his back, which is a terrible idea. 
You should not go out and get a big tattoo of Jesus on your back. If you're thinking about it, read this story and you will quickly discover why you don't want to do this. But, but there's a scene in the story where the guy has to choose, Parker has to choose what he wants the picture of Jesus to look like. He's given a book that has all these different pictures. And as he flips through the book, he's flipping through time. He's going through a lot of sort of modern, sentimental, friendly versions of Jesus. He goes back through a lot of images of kind of medieval, suffering Jesus. And then he gets back behind all of that, and he finds an image of Christ, which O'Connor describes as the flat, stern, Byzantine Christ with the all-demanding eyes. She's imagining there like a mosaic of Christ, And it's a specific kind of mosaic called a pantocrator. If you walked into a a Byzantine church and you went to the the dome and you looked up, you would see this, this version of Jesus staring back. And he is seated on a throne. He's got an orb in his hand and he is ruling and reigning. This is uh, Jesus, the ruler of all creation. Jesus enthroned. That's the Jesus. That's the Jesus that we're speaking about when we say kiss the son lest he be angry. Be reconciled to King Jesus. Submit yourself to King Jesus and let him defeat your enemies. Again, the question is, where is your king? Where is your king who rules and reigns in your life? When earthly powers fail, you need to know who's in charge. If there's one lesson that we are being forced to learn right now, over and over again, day by day, it is the limits of earthly power. We're being shown how unreliable our human kings really are. How uncertain, how far beyond their control reality actually is. And when you live in times like these, when earthly powers are showing their limitations and their weaknesses, you need to know who is in charge. You need to know who rules. If the times are teaching us anything, they're teaching us that on earth, nobody's in charge. Whatever the claims to power are, nobody rules and reigns except one. There is one king. If your king sits anywhere else, he's no king at all. But if your king sits on Zion, then he is the king of all things. Your king sits anywhere but Zion, he is no king at all. So let this be our confession during uncertain times. As we ask ourselves who's in charge, what's going to happen, our confession of faith should be the words that the Father himself speaks. My king sits on Zion. When the world asks, we should answer, my king sits on Zion. When they come to you and they say, let's break free, you should answer, my king sits on Zion, God's holy hill. And there is no king but Jesus. But if that's your confession of faith, one thing follows. This might be the most important thing. It's the lesson right at the end of the psalm. If Jesus is your king, then take refuge in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. 
In other words, don't just make the boast. Don't just make the confession of faith. Don't just speak it with your lips, but act on it. Take refuge in him. Go to him for comfort. Don't seek other saviors in your uncertainty. Go to him. Take refuge in him alone. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.